So you guys doing all right? You're like completely overwhelmed by the sea of information you've been receiving and processing? Yeah, good. Thanks for coming. My name is Micah Kepart, and I'm founder and CEO of Poetis International. And uh, we're a faith-based community development organization. We work in Southern Africa, Zambia, South Africa, uh, Lesotho, and Swaziland. And we do a number of different projects, um, and I'll get to that a little bit. Um, but really what I want to communicate this afternoon is kind of the heart behind why we do what we do, what compels us to do what we do, and how we do what we do. Um, how many of you are, are kind of feeling the, uh, the call to missions? Anybody in here feeling that pull? None of you? Okay, you're dismissed. Uh, we have nothing to talk about. Well, maybe after this seminar, you'll, you'll feel God uh, tugging at you a little bit. Um, just to give you some backstory, I graduated from Indiana Wesleyan University. Oh, sweet. It was received very well. Um, I graduated with a degree in elementary education. Have no idea why, but I did. Um, when I graduated from college, my father, uh, who's a pastor, offered me a spot at my home church, and uh, I immediately said, absolutely not. Um, I'm not going to be in local church ministry, and two weeks later, I took my first job in local church ministry. Um, I was a family spiritual formation director at that church, uh, spent uh, two years there, then started uh, leading worship for, um, I don't know, you probably never heard of it, it's called a contemporary service. Uh, at the time, it was all the rage, and uh, so I was a worship leader for that for two years, and then um, God led me to Holland, Michigan, where I took a job just as a worship pastor. And in 2007, I went to Zambia for the first time, biggest mistake I ever made, um, and had a profound experience. Um, came face to face with uh, one of the greatest uh, health crises we've ever seen in the existence of the world, which is HIV and AIDS. And uh, I remember being in a village, John Howard Compound is what it's called in Lusaka, um, Zambia's capital, and I was uh, walking through this village and all these kids were, were everywhere running after us, you know, makua, makua, and uh, feeling all like, you know, Bono-ish, right? I went to Zambia to play music and all these kids are, you know, all over the place. And, and it was working well because everybody, you know, in Zambia thinks that anybody from the West is a cowboy and a rock star. So I was living the dream. And uh, found myself in, in, in the home of this woman who was very, very sick. And um, a very common, uh, all too common situation where uh, her husband was unfaithful to her, um, contracted HIV, came home and uh, infected his wife, and then she got sick, and once she got sick, he left her, uh, left her with uh, six kids. And uh, we were in her home, she had tuberculosis and malaria, 
you don't die of HIV and AIDS, it destroys your immune system and then something like the common cold can kill you if you don't have the right nourishment. So she was very sick. And her caregiver there said, we've got a team from the United States, a bunch of musicians, and how would you like them to serve you? And uh, I have replayed this conversation in my mind over and over again. And if, if I were a woman dying of HIV, uh, which I'm glad I will never be a woman dying of HIV, um, and someone asked me, how can these musicians care for you? I would have said a thousand things uh, before I said what she said. I would have said, tell them to get their white butts out of my house, give me some food. You know, or, or I need a blanket, I'm cold, I'd, I'd love to, I need medicine. Um, but she responded, I want that guy to sing me a song. And I will never forget, uh, Chris Tomlin wasn't popular at the time, so I just, you know, the first song that came to my mind was Amazing Grace, and so I sang this song over her. And um, a couple weeks later, she passed away, but her caregiver said that she was in such a peaceful state when she died. Now, there's probably a lot of different ways that I could have met her tangible needs. But I think what, what God was teaching me in that moment is that um, all I need is you. Um, all I want is you. Uh, I don't need you to be an expert at anything. I don't need you to be this crazy, brilliant activist. I just need you, how I wired you, how I created you, and I will use all of that to meet the needs of my children. And because it happened that way, as a worship pastor, uh, I have uh, had what I call my second conversion, um, where a sleeping giant of justice woke up in my heart. I began to learn about the, the AIDS crisis, I began to learn about the orphan crisis because of HIV and AIDS, and I was introduced to issues uh, related to exploitation um, back in 2007 when I went for the first time. And so I came back and felt like God was calling me to step out of local church and uh, to spend my life uh, meeting the needs of the lost and the least in Southern Africa. And so I started Poetis International. So it's just cool to be here, um, to be sharing some of my experiences and my story with you. And what I wanna do before we get to this massive topic of human exploitation and trafficking is um, I wanna paint a picture of uh, sort of God's intent for creation and humanity because there's really two things that are really important for those of us who are called to missions or development work or compassionate ministry, whatever you're called to, um, there's two things that we have to get right. One, we have to know who God is and we have to know what his intent for humanity was. We need to know the standard. We need to know the origin um, because the redemptive story is putting things back the way they were supposed to be. Do you agree with me? I mean, that's essentially what we're working towards. And so that, that, that has to be the point that we begin with and the point that we continue to go back to. The second thing that we have to get right is our missiology. We have to know who God is, we have to know his intent for the world, and we have to know how he reaches out to meet the needs 
of the lost and the least. And we find that very tangibly in the life of Jesus. And so I want to paint that picture of God's intent, and then I want to talk about kind of um, not only what we do, but how we do what we do. So it's kind of the why, the how, and the what that I want to answer um, in the session. So we can kind of find God's intent in Genesis 18. If you have a Bible, turn there. Um, for those of you who don't read your Bible, shame on you, but I do have it uh, here. Provide that for you. Um, Genesis 18, 17 through 19 says, The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth, of the earth will be blessed? For I've chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep, what's it say? The way of the Lord. That's an important, important statement. The way of the Lord. By doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. So God wants to bring to Abraham, through Abraham, what God had spoken. And he wants to do that through the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. So there is just a, a, a bunch of beautiful theological implications in the, these short two verses. And um, so I wanna try to unpack this a little bit. Before I do that, what was God about to do? It says right, right in the first uh, uh, verse 17, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? What, what, is it, what was he about to do? Do a little context search in your Bible. Read a couple verses before, read a couple verses after. What was God about to do? Anybody know? Yeah. Destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what he was about to do. So my question is, why was God about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? I ask a lot of questions, and I wait till I get participation because I was an elementary education major in college. <laughs> Why? What was Sodom and Gomorrah's sin? Come on, you're all thinking about it. What's that? Immorality. Is that it? Okay, how many of you were thinking homosexuality? Yeah, a few of you were thinking that. Uh, good answer. I think it's probably the most logical answer for any of us, uh, but the answer is actually no. That wasn't uh, what Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed for. And, and it's, it's important, and we're not in the session to talk about homosexuality, but a, a lot of Christians use this scripture to condemn uh, homosexuality. And again, in this passage, that's kind of a non-issue. There's something deeper that God was grieved about. And the answer is found in Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. Thus, they were haughty and committed abominations before me. 
Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. So what sin was Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed for? I just read it. Yeah. She didn't help the poor and the needy. She had a lot. She had abundance. And she didn't share it. Because she held on to it, it led to abominations. But the original disobedience was the fact that she had a lot and did not care for the poor and the needy in their communities. And so if we get back to the Genesis passage, the way of the Lord is much different than the way Sodom and Gomorrah were operating. Okay? So he explains the way of the Lord with two words, righteousness and justice. And to explain these words, this is an ancient scale. This is kind of the picture that um, you know, an Israelite would see when they would talk about righteousness and justice. Zedakah is righteousness, mishpat is justice. Those are the Hebrew words. And what's the point of a scale? You want to... Balance a scale, right? That's the purpose. It's to weigh things. And, and so God uses these two words to explain how the way of the Lord is to be kept. Um, so each is a distinctive form of justice. Mishpat means retributive or retributive justice. Retributive justice, all right? So, for example, this is retributive justice. Um, go ahead and smack me in the face. I'm good. It's okay. Just backhand me really lightly. Okay. So, retributive justice would say, what does he get for the crime against me? We're good. We're good. Smacked him back. Okay, it's kind of the eye for an eye type of mentality. That's retributive justice. But that alone is not enough. Now, we want communities to be ruled by law. Okay, disputes are often settled by right rather than might. You weigh the evidence, you hear both sides, and instead of enacting revenge, you just give them what they deserve. That, that's what communities need, right? We need justice in our communities, retributive justice in our communities. But that alone is not enough. And so what God adds to that, he adds zedakah, or distributive justice. This speaks to distribution. So one can imagine a society which fastidiously observes the rule of law and yet contains so much inequality that wealth is concentrated in the hands of the few. And many are left without the most basic requirements of a dignified existence. There can be the rich, and then there can be high unemployment and widespread poverty. Some live in luxury, some are homeless. That is not the kind of order the Torah contemplates. Now, I want to be careful. 
I, I'm, I'm not saying that to be rich is to be wrong. I don't want you to go home and say, hey, there's this speaker, he said, if you're rich, you're a sinner. Okay, being wealthy is not a sin. But the point of zedakah and mishpat is to say the reason you are wealthy is to be generous to the poor. That's the whole point of the way of the Lord because he wants to get the scales in balance again. The thing that is not according to the way of the Lord is a disparity between the rich and the poor. That's not according to the designed order of things. It's not supposed to be that way. And so what is wealth for? Is it for the extra home? Is it for two or three cars and a boat and an island if you're that wealthy? It's not. According to God's order, it's so that you will be generous. And he tells us that in Deuteronomy. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. Freely lend them whatever they need. So this is a command in Deuteronomy for God's people. Now you see why Sodom and Gomorrah were in direct disobedience from God, right? Because they had a lot and they weren't open-handed with it. And it led to various forms of immorality. But the point is that they weren't generous. So we gotta come back to the fact that the purpose of wealth is to meet basic needs of people. What are your basic needs? Food, water, shelter, clothing, skills, you know. I mean, the basic human needs, this is talking about not living a life of crazy abundance, but living a dignified life. To be content doesn't take a ton. You know, if you can meet the needs of your family and you can have shelter and you have access to education and, and health care, you can live a very dignified life. And the reality is that there are millions of people who live an undignified life. They are trapped in cycles of poverty that keeps them in despair, just crushes their spirit. And God looks at that situation, he's like, that, that's not what I want. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna allow people to have abundance so that they can give to those without. And so the problem is with socioeconomic disparity, and in fact, the Israelites had uh, what were called zedakah funds. It was like a charitable project within the, the church. And they would take collections, and the purpose of zedakah funds were to be dispersed and distributed to orphans and widows and people needing to pay a dowry, because let's be honest, that gets expensive. I mean, 5,000 cows? How many of you are up for that when you get married? Right? I've been there. No, I haven't. But some people have. Okay? And they would even provide money so that you could pay a dowry for your wedding. This was the purpose of these funds that were set up. They were called zedakah funds. 
So, there are 30 million slaves today. I, do. I don't want you to look at that yet. I want you to look at that. 30 million slaves today. I, you, I can't even wrap my mind around that number. 30 million slaves today, more than any other time in history. These are men, women, children forced to uh, work in bonded servitude, indentured servitude, sexual exploitation, um, military and war, uh, body parts in some countries, which is just so appalling um, that uh, a child would be trafficked for their body parts, many times used in ritualist, ritualistic in incantations, Satanism, just, just disgusting stuff. And this is an industry that generates $32 billion a year and exists on virtually every country on earth. So how does this happen? I mean, I just kind of explained the beautiful picture, the way of the Lord, you know, righteousness and justice being in a balance, the wealthy being generous to the poor so that everyone can live a dignified existence. How is it possible that we have 30 million slaves today? Can someone tell me? People are greedy. That's a great answer. Tight-fisted. Entitlement is mine. I worked hard for this. I deserve this. Are, is that language that even fits inside of Christianity? If you truly follow Jesus, can we use those words? What do you deserve? I don't even want to talk about what we deserve. It's not grace. You know what I mean? Entitlement, mine, mine. These are not, it's not Christian words. It's not Christian to use those words. Those are curse words from now on. If you use them, it's swearing. The whole idea is for people to be generous. So the way that we have, you know, a situation such as slavery with 30 million is because there's socioeconomic disparity. There's the haves and there's the have-nots. And it doesn't even have to do with money necessarily. There are people who are powerful and there are people who are weak. You don't have to have money to be strong. You can simply be bigger than another person. And if you're bigger, you look pretty. Lift weights a little bit? No? You look like you do. He, he, he's given strength to protect. You know what I mean? So it doesn't have to necessarily be money. It can be whatever you are given that gives you an advantage over another person. That is to be used to serve the weaker, not to be lorded over them. And that's why we have widespread poverty. That's why we have exploitation in all of its forms. That's why we have HIV and AIDS. Now, back in the 80s when uh, we kind of discovered HIV and AIDS through, uh, I don't know if you've heard of Ryan White, he uh, contracted HIV through a blood transfusion, kind of made the disease popular. Our scientists got on it, and within a matter of years, we knew how it's contracted, there's no cure, widespread education. Is there an AIDS problem in uh, North America? Not really. It's less than 1%. 
as opposed to developing countries who didn't have access to those scientists, they didn't have access to that education, they didn't have access to healthcare. And now we have one of the greatest humanitarian crises we've ever seen. So you, you kind of see what the disparity does. You see what the inequality, the imbalance does to the world. It creates absolute and utter chaos. So what do we do about this? Um, I think what we're trying to do is we're trying to reestablish the balance. And so when it comes to issues of human exploitation, um, some of the issues related to that are violence. Uh, justice systems are broken. Um, in, in many countries, there is no retributive justice. Retributive justice goes to the highest bidder, okay? So if there were just justice systems in some of these countries, people would be protected, their rights would be protected, the vulnerable, the exploited could be protected, especially in countries where exploitation is illegal, which is most countries but yet there's a problem. And so we need ministries like International Justice Mission. How many of you are familiar with International Justice Mission? Okay, stellar. I mean, Gary Hagan, unbelievable. I heard him speak at a justice conference in Philly a couple years ago, and it was amazing. He said, I was a lawyer, and when I encountered um, the issue of human exploitation, I knew I had to do something, and so I started International Justice Mission to uh, organize rescue operations and try to reform the legal systems in developing countries. How long do you think it took International Justice Mission to rescue their first victim? Take a guess. Six years. They're currently rescuing like thousands of people every year. It took International Justice Mission six years to rescue one person in a sea of 30 million. Isn't that amazing? And we need, we need organizations like IJM who are trying to reform the justice systems in countries so that there can be safety because violence is a huge perpetrator for vulnerable people as it relates to exploitation. But we also need ministries like Not For Sale. Who's familiar with Not For Sale? Okay, Not For Sale was started by David Batstone. His son Ethan is an acquaintance of mine who's on staff as well. And uh, I was talking with Ethan a few years ago at a music festival, and I was saying, how's it going with Not For Sale? He goes, not well. I was like, not well, what do you mean? And he said, well, we're completely changing our model. Now, Not For Sale was started to do rescue and recovery operations with victims of exploitation. That is why they started. And many of you may have read the book, Not For Sale, by David Bastone. It's It's phenomenal. But they recognized that they need to do something different. And in fact, there's a quote by David, the founder. He said, pulling drowning people out of the river is compassion, but we have to walk upstream to solve the reasons they are falling in. So there's a parable told of babies floating down a river. You've probably never heard it before. It's not real common. Um, village people were standing by the river, Baby floats down. Baby in the water? What in the world? Someone jumps in, takes the baby out. 
Oh, good baby. Rescues it to health. Another baby floats down. Another person jumps in. And there's two babies. And there's five. All of a sudden, there's like 15 babies floating down the river. So there's villagers come, coming. All the villagers are coming. They're jumping in, taking these babies out. They're like, oh, we're doing a good thing. You know, we're rescuing these babies. And then it gets to the point where they don't have enough people in the village to jump in the water to pull the babies out. And babies start floating by. And the local fishermen are like, why didn't someone walk upstream to see who's throwing the babies in? And the villagers thought, no, no, the babies are here. They're in the water. We need to keep, you know, we don't know what's up there. We have no idea what we'll find. And if we go up there, then more and more babies are just going to float down the river. And so there's this tension. I mean, do we stop pulling babies out of the water? No, absolutely not. We need more people pulling babies out of the water. With 30 million enslaved, we need people pulling them out. But we also need organizations that are brave enough and courageous enough to walk up the river, not knowing what we'll find, and possibly see what in the world is causing these babies to be thrown in the river in the first place. And so we walk up river and we try to find the broken systems, the cycles of poverty, the community realities in developing countries of what's tossing these babies in the river in the first place. And so Not For Sale has completely changed their model. And now they do community-based development, trafficking and exploitation prevention initiatives, which is really similar what Poetis International does. And so the effects of socioeconomic disparity, so we have this divide, okay, we've recognized that. We've recognized there's this disparity between the rich and the poor, we've recognized the powerful and the weak. Because of that, Poetis has realized there are 57 million kids are out of school. 57 million kids don't go to school. 37 million are girls, half of these kids are in Sub-Saharan Africa. 35 million cases of HIV worldwide, 70% of those cases, Sub-Saharan Africa. 91% of the world's HIV-positive children, Sub-Saharan Africa. 91% of kids infected with HIV are in Sub-Saharan Africa. 143 million orphans worldwide. Eight out of 10 who are orphaned by HIV and AIDS are in Sub-Saharan Africa. Do you think there's gonna be some problems created in Sub-Saharan Africa if this is the reality that we're looking at? I mean, obviously something's going on. This is not right. This is not the way of the Lord, is it? Did God intend for this? No, this is not at all the way of the Lord. And so in order to approach this issue, uh, we have to have a proper missiology. So we started with the way God intended it to be. And at Poetis International, we've adopted um, an idea called integral mission. Integral mission. Uh, back in the 70s, there were a bunch of Spanish pastors. I don't know where they were, probably Spain. 
And um, they recognized that there were organizations who did evangelism and pastor training and church planning, all incredible stuff. And then they kind of go over here and they'd see organizations who were doing feeding programs and building hospitals and clinics. And they're kind of going, why are these separate? They said, these shouldn't be separate. These should, these should be together. This is one and the same thing. And so they coined the term integral mission where we get the word holistic development and they discovered it from the life of Jesus. Perfect example is Jesus feeds the 5,000. Why did he meet those people in the first place? What was he doing? He was teaching. That's exactly right. And the disciple says, hey, dude, peeps are hungry. Maybe we should send them out into the cities, tell them to go get some food. Jesus goes, no. They're here, they're gathered to hear me teach, so I'm gonna feed them too. Dude, you're the mayor of crazy town. There's no way we are gonna feed all these people. And so Jesus performs a miracle and feeds everyone. I mean, he uses these access points. If people are hungry, I'm gonna meet that felt need, but I'm also gonna, gonna point them to the true depths of their hunger, a hunger for God. Woman at the well, I'm thirsty, right? Well, I've got living water. It bubbles, it's a spring, it never ends. Woman's ready to move her whole family to that place. And so he uses these access points, the felt needs of people, to point them to the deeper need that we all have. So an integral mission says it's not that we proclaim the gospel and we have the action of the gospel alongside each other. It's that the proclamation of the gospel has natural social implications or should have natural social implications. If it doesn't, if you're preaching the gospel without meeting needs of people, you're not preaching the gospel. That's hard to hear, you know what I mean? If you're just digging a bunch of wells without the opportunity to point people to their deep thirst for God, you're really not adding any eternal value in the world. I say that very cautiously because I don't want to minimize the good that people are doing in the world for people. But as Christ followers, I really feel like we got to get this right. We got to go in with eyes wide open saying, I'm in this to meet the whole needs, the mind, body, and spirit of the people that we're trying to serve. And so this is kind of, um, this is kind of our approach. This is our missiology. Um, we proclaim the word, but we also uh, act the word into the lives of people. And um, this is a, um, a picture that kind of portrays the dimensions that Poetis International works in in Southern Africa. And um, so you'll see kind of the, the issues around the wheel are fairly universal to developing countries. They are in every country that we work in and many more in Africa and other parts of the world. There's an education problem. There's lack of opportunity for economic advancement. There's human exploitation. There's an orphan crisis just about everywhere that you turn. And then there's the church doing its best 
to do what God has called them to do. And so what Poetis does is we recognize not just vulnerable people, but vulnerable communities. So a lot of the communities that we work in have an orphan problem. If the majority of AIDS orphans are in Southern Africa, most communities have an orphan problem and the church is trying to address that issue. Now orphans, someone who has lost one or both parents, are an ocean of supply for people looking for an opportunity to exploit, okay? Lost their parents. Um, they have this uh, situation called head of household where you could be 15 years old but you're forced to care for your siblings if you've lost both parents. So at 15, you know, I think all, all of you are older than 15, but what if you lost your parents and you had to find a way to work a job and go to school and take your, it's nearly impossible. And so orphans are incredibly vulnerable to being exploited. Uh, you saw the numbers of how many orphans aren't in school. So what are they doing? They're just trying to exist, which is not a dignified existence. And so we come into vulnerable communities and we try to address the holistic needs of that community. And not only do we, do we exist in those dimensions, but with integral mission, these dimensions overlap. So for example, uh, I was meeting with a pastor a few months ago in Zambia, and um, you know he was saying, boy, I just love what you guys do with, with orphan care and, and how you uh, help victims of exploitation, you know, you know, recover, and it's just really beautiful. I'm like, thanks, man, thanks. Yeah, it's kind of cool, you know? And he's like, yeah, that's what the church should be doing better. And, and he's a Zambian pastor. He said, we want to care for our orphans. We want to care for our widows. And so I said, well, I mean, how can we help you do that? I mean, the church has been there long before the nonprofit, will be there long after the nonprofit. So, how do we help the local church care for your orphans, care for the exploited, care for the widows in your community? He said, Oranges. That makes sense. Yeah, oranges. I mean, I would have, that would have been my conclusion. You know, oranges. He said, We need oranges. Okay, help me out here. I'm dumb. Oranges. Yeah, well, if we, if we have clean water and we have orange groves, they're perennial fruit that grow year-round. We can sell them in the local market. We can even make orange juice. And if we start generating income as a local church, we can provide for our pastor, and we can have the resources to meet the needs of the lost and the least in our communities. I said, what else? Theological training, okay, what else? Transportation. It's hard for us to get out to the remote parts of the village, but if we had transportation, we could do home-based care just like you guys do. It's like, all right. And so you see, just with church empowerment, I mean, orphan care overlaps, economic advancement overlaps, education overlaps. That's achieving integral mission in vulnerable communities in Southern Africa. So here's an example. It's about a year ago, I think, maybe two. Um, 
we got a call at our base in Choma, Zambia, and we had been doing some community sensitization initiatives where we go into a community, and much like Lisa shared this morning, some of the stats of exploitation and trafficking, um, some of the red flags, you know, exploiters come in and say, do you want a job, you know, do you want uh, to go to school, do you want to go to America, you know, and if you're a vulnerable person, yes, I want all of those things, and they end up landing in a situation of forced prostitution or something similar. And in fact, in Livingston, a border town, uh, right on the uh, border of Zimbabwe, um, if HIV is one in seven in Zambia, in this town, HIV is one in every three. One in every three are infected with HIV because prostitution is so bad. You know, people promise these ladies' businesses, hey, you can do cross-border training. I'll give you a pack of second-hand clothes, and then you can take this ring and sell these clothes. Just pay me back what I, what I gave to you, but you're going to make a lot of money. Well, they end up not being able to pay the person back. They end up in a situation of forced prostitution to pay back that debt. And so we're explaining these to the to communities so that they can see this. And so our Orphans and Vulnerable Children Department got a call from a community that said, hey, we've got this young girl named Ines. This is Ines. Precious. She's 12. This young girl named Ines. And um, her parents are really sick. She has a biological mom and a stepdad. Her biological father died of HIV. Her stepdad's wife died of HIV. And now her, both of her parents, her, her mom and her stepdad, are HIV positive. They're extremely sick. And Ines isn't in school because Ines has to care for her parents. And there's this guy hanging around our community, and he's been spending time with Ines. And we don't really know who he is. We're just kind of concerned. And so we just, boom, got into that community and started doing a, a, a baseline assessment of what's going on. And we realized that Ines was vulnerable to becoming taken. It's a common thing in Zambia, Zimbabwe. Um, and so what did we do? Right away, we gotta get Ines in school. Scholarship. Our sewing co-op made her a uniform. Bam, Ines is in school. Problem solved. No, not yet. Because her parents are really sick. So we realized that Ines had been missing a lot of school. And we asked Timothy and Miriam, why is Ines not going to school? She has a uniform, books, bags, scholarship. Why isn't she in school? We're too sick to go to the clinic. And so Ines has to stay home and take care of us. And if we do go to the clinic, Ines has to stay home to watch the house. Why does she have to watch the house? Well, we don't have a lock on the door. Well, where can I get a lock? And they said, at Lowe's. They didn't say it Lowe's. It's like, I'm going to go get a lock. So I went, and I got a lock, and I put a lock on the door, and I was like, now can I just go to school? And they're like, yeah, she can go to school every day. This is great. We can lock the door. But Timothy and Miriam were so sick that it caused great distress on Ines. And so we decided, oh, man, we got to meet the needs of this, this, this couple, mom and dad. And so the department came 
and started taking Timothy and Miriam to the clinic. Now, the first few weeks, they would show up at their house, which was in terrible disrepair. They'd have to pick up both Timothy and Miriam, carry them to the car, carry them to the clinic. They did that for weeks because they didn't have the strength to walk. And so for weeks, they were getting injections and medicine. And over the course of, of several weeks, I. I came to Zambia to visit this family, and in that process, we had purchased what we call a transitional home. We've got a couple transitional uh, home projects where a vulnerable family or a person, a victim of exploitation, can just stay there for a while so that we can kind of assess their needs and figure out what a long-term strategy for them was. So I was visiting them in the transitional home, and I was greeted at the door by Miriam, who was 50 pounds dripping wet just a wiry young lady who couldn't walk. She comes to the door and she's like, ah, oh, papa, papa, you know, starts dancing and I'm like, whoa, this is kind of crazy. She's dragging me into the house, showing me the, the, the cleanliness and the ventilation and Ines's room. She walks into her room and she just takes a leap and jumps on her bed and I'm like, this is not the Miriam that I remember. And when we visited the clinic that day, a nurse came up to me and she said, some, some of your team has been working with this family. And I said, yeah. I said, she said, if they hadn't done what you've done, both of them would be dead. And I was like, it was that serious? She said, yes, they were weeks, maybe days, from dying of HIV because they both had tuberculosis. And so it's been amazing to see how we come into a community and wrap our arms around the whole family because it doesn't stop with just one issue. Putting Inus in school wasn't the end all to the be all, though it's a great first step. There were other needs that the family had, and this is multiplied throughout a community. Inus is happy. Elena, I met in Lusaka. Uh, we did uh, trafficking outreach in Zambia's capital, and we were talking about the red flags, the ABCs of human trafficking, and, um, oh, I got rid of Elena's picture. Elena came up, and she goes, oh, I need help. I've been trapped in this for, uh, for about a year. Double orphan, didn't know where to turn, was forced into prostitution. She goes, I need help. So we took her down to our base, and Choma, and one of the many things that we do along with counseling and uh, some type of skill, uh, we teach a skill to individuals, uh, we, we, we get them involved in the ministry. And one of the families that Elena was involved in was Inus, caring for the needs of this family. Elena, after six months of restorative care, said, I believe uh, I've discovered what God wants me to do. And I was like, what's that? She goes, well, I know I'm not a prostitute anymore. I think I want to be a pastor. <laughs> I was like, what? Yeah, I've been ministering to Miriam, Timothy, and, and Inus, and I, and I know Inus's story, how she was almost, almost vulnerable to being taken. I don't want that to happen to any young girl because it happened to me. 
And, and, and now that as I recover, I'm realizing that I have a story to share with young girls of how I was trapped into it, and I can tell them how not to be trapped into it. That's integral mission. That's discovering that God wants to take prostitutes and turn them into pastors, you know? And so Elena's being discipled in South Africa, one of our partners in South Africa, to become a minister of the gospel. It's a beautiful story. And so I wanna encourage you, if God puts something in your heart to do missions or calls you to compassionate ministry, that there are those who need to kick down the doors of the brothel and steal the girls out. There's also organizations that need to, to swim upstream and focus on vulnerable communities and find ways that we can secure exploitation from happening in those communities. A lot of people ask me questions on how you can get involved. And I'll just share this briefly. There's a dinner, um, oh there's beauty. There's a dinner tonight, um, I don't know what time it is, I'm sure you can find out somehow that I'm gonna be talking about some of our internship opportunities. Uh, but I believe wholeheartedly in scholarships for education. A dollar a day you can put a kid in school. A dollar a day. I think most of us could probably afford that. Um, organizations that support economic advancement, get behind them. We've got projects that, that are ongoing, get behind economic advancement because it provides an alternative reality for people. If you're interested in a three-month cross-cultural internship, poetis.org backslash go, that's what we're gonna be meeting about tonight to talk about some of those opportunities. And if you just wanna go for an immersion experience, uh, Abigail's on our staff, she oversees all of our team's coordination. You can email her, abigail at poetis.org. Be bold, be courageous, and go into all the world and preach the gospel. Let me pray for you. God, thanks for this time to sit and share and talk and dream and recover um, your original intent for the world. And we know that these issues are far greater than us, but they're not greater than you. We know the battle's won but not done, and so I pray that you would compel these students, that you would put it deep in their hearts, um, a heart that reflects yours, a heart that breaks for what breaks yours, and send us out, uh, even into dangerous places, um, to restore what's been taken. Uh, we know that this is what you want to do, and we'll follow you to it. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.